welcome to Meaning It. So we are now willing, or most of us are anyway, to admit climate change is real, we still don't seem to want to take serious enough action to deal with it. To understand why, I spoke with Chris Robertson, a senior member of the Climate Psychology Alliance. So um, welcome, Chris, to the show. Thank you so much. As you know, um, it's called Meaning It, and we're all about people meaning what they do or not meaning it. And it's clear to many of us that people on the whole have stopped denying the existence of climate change as a problem. They've stopped saying it's a hoax. Um, and yet there's some curious thing that happens that um, they know it and they say, I know all about it. Don't you tell me any more about it. It's just insulting and patronizing that you should think I know more about it. Um, and yet they're behaving as though they didn't know it. Well, I mean, we all maintain our lives despite all sorts of things that would want us to change them, but we carry on just as we always have. And um, this process is called disavowal, whereby we know something out there, but actually it doesn't impinge too much. So I managed to continue flying around the world for my holidays because I can or um, you know why would I need to sell my car because you know it doesn't make that much of a difference so through a process of rationalizations and other means I sort of distance myself from the horror of the climate change and could you uh, Chris could you say something also about the work you've been doing with Sally Weintraub and others well, that is um, Climate Psychology Alliance. Um, has that's, This is Sally's brilliant book on the psychological roots of climate change, um, which spells out in great detail and very practically how the process of disavowal happens and how we create these little bubbles of reality. She calls them fraud bubbles, um, like the extraordinary frauds from Enron and others. And how did they, how did they pull that off? Well, these are just like uh, large examples of what we create for ourselves and in our communities and how these bubbles allow alternate realities, alternate facts, alternate truths. Um, and this is part of, um, this is part of our age at the moment, isn't it? That we, allow these to go on. Um, but I think climate change is going to impact so deeply that they're going to collapse. And many of them are collapsing. Uh, uh, of course, when they collapse, it, the consequences are hugely painful. I mean, the monetary crisis uh, had all sorts of consequences which are still playing out. Um, and that is the problem with fraud, is when it collapses, people have to pay up, and it's often not the perpetrators. I've recently been interested in the connection between racism and climate change, and the, the horrors of slavery, um, which we are all in the West, especially in Britain and America, complicit in. It's like when people are interviewed about this, it's just too horrible to really imagine yourself in the position of the slave owner 
So you move into this sort of bystander position where you agree it's horrible, it's wicked, it shouldn't have happened, but, you know, it doesn't really affect me. So the, the horror of it sort of puts me at a distance. I thought you were going to say it's painful to empathise with the suffering of the slave, but you're actually talking about it being difficult for us to empathise with the suffering of the slave owner when he realises what he's been doing, because because the slave owner is the person we're more like. I mean, we're the high consumers of the global north, and, and we don't want to recognise how complicit we've been in inflicting such terrible climate catastrophes on people in the global south. I think the the horror and the tragedy of what's happening with the climate, which makes um, in the last few months, or, or is it, it's more than the year now, of the pandemic, is just going to put that into the, a distant perspective. We think this is awful, but the true, um, I'm trying to find the word, the calamity of a, of a full-blown climate crisis and the, the extinction of so many animals that um, it's not just the odd few. It's going to get much closer to home and it is terrifying. And how can you look at this? You can't. So this way of displacing it, distancing it, not looking at it, um, I remember what's come to mind is a, a great character um, from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy who had two heads. Uh, oh, yes, Rocks. And he had a pair of dark glasses that um, whenever anything frightening came on, they went completely black. So this is, um, this is like a lovely image of anything that is too horrible we find a way of distancing ourselves and making ourselves bystanders too. So it doesn't fully impact. But how, how are we going to get past this? Because, you know, be, precisely because it is so cataclysmic, we will all have to deal with it and make changes in our lives because otherwise it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We won't change and therefore it will be more cataclysmic. How are we going to really grapple with what each of us can do, either domestically or by pressuring governments um, to do something really big? Well, um, I think for myself, I think there are little disciplines that are helpful um, in terms of whether you're recycling or whatever. Although, in fact, I think they make no difference to the whole. That is such a huge, a huge change that only governments and very big organisations can be involved in. But I still think it's a good practice. It's like a, a discipline not to feel entitled that you can have whatever you want. This is already a good discipline to start to develop. So you're saying it's important to live differently, not only because it reduces our carbon footprint, but in a more fundamental way, in order to challenge the fantasy that our consumer society has deluded us with, that it's okay for us to all live like, like trainee billionaires, 
entitled to take and consume whatever we want whenever we want it. My little bit is how to change the psychology and the culture of fraud that is perpetuated on television that um, was supposedly a presentation of this wonderful new regime whereby we're all going to earn more and live better. Um, it's extraordinary. Um, and I, I, it, it's difficult for me to understand how people believe in it. We are being sold a bubble and we're, we're buying into it. And um, we, we live in these, so more and more now, we live in these bubbles where we self-perpetuate um, our sense of reality. And it feels like it's becoming less and less concerned with any truth. And yet, <laughs> there is <laughs> this, this truth that is impinging on us, you know, whether it's going to be a hurricane or a flood. Um, and one of the amazing things, interviewing people who've been through hurricanes and floods and fire disasters, is they very quickly afterwards want to return to life as normal. It's like, that was a little blip, you know, do not adjust your mind, reality is at fault. Um, and that, you know, that um, it's difficult to understand anyone who's lived through a fire that's nearly consumed your house can want to go back to normal. But it seems like a defensive psychological response to a trauma that is too much. It's too much and we can't bear it. So this is one of, I think, the key notions in the psychology around the climate is that it's unbearable. So it's unbearable to face into these things. So we find all these ways of defending against it or deflecting it. And this is what's called the disavowal. Because the reality on the other side is unbearable. To face into it, we have to have a lot of courage. So in the Climate Psychology Alliance, we have these great events that are called climate cafes, where people can come along and talk about their uncertainties and their doubts and their worries and how can we face into something that's so horrible and unbearable. And they hear that they're not alone in this and there are other people who are also struggling and that it's not about an expert who's sorted it out. There is a sense of um, being together in a, you know, in a struggling community who doesn't really know how to face into the horrors um, and and I think it's going to be this mixture of the situation getting more and more obvious, more and more, I'm really sad to say this, you know, more and more awful climate events. Um, and there's the denial is, um, uh, I, I, actually I'm a bit sort of choked up with the feelings about what what it has to be like before we really start to do something about it. Uh, from a psychological perspective, there's two things I can say. One is how to, how to manage the fear, how to feel safe enough. And one of the things that we don't really understand in our culture is about soothing. So, I mean, mothers soothe babies, assuming they're able to because a lot of babies aren't properly soothed and that's the beginning of a, uh, a trauma that continues. So, and 
we seek comfort rather than soothing, whether that's through drugs, alcohol, escapist literature, films, you know, our whole culture offers these escapes, which gives comfort, but it doesn't really soothe. So what would bring genuine soothing rather than comfort? So we can stop comfort consuming and meet our real deep down needs. And that's the key question, I suppose, that we each have to answer for ourselves. Because for some of us, the need may be to find a meaningful life. And for others, the need might be to belong or to express yourself. For others still, it may be to find peace or joy or connectedness or all of the above. And once we recognize our real needs, we may feel soothed enough then to face the real dangers and join those who are taking serious enough action against the destroyers of the planet. So learning to soothe and be able to bear some frightening things is a very important process. And the other, um, which I'm keen on, but doesn't really have good cachet at the moment, is the imagination. And mostly when people talk about the imagination, they, they imagine some sort of escapist, let's imagine the future and we'll all have a, a positive role to play and wouldn't it be wonderful? And, and this, you know, we could say this is fantasy, um, but maybe it's not really the imagination. So first step towards empathy is to be able to imagine myself like the other. So um, I can't remember in which conversation we've, we were talking about um, slavery and racism. Um, and... Yes, that being able to imagine myself as a slave owner is really putting myself in the other's shoes. And people have a huge resistance to seeing that I'm a perpetrator. I'm complicit in this. Um, because then you, you start to feel the pain of that and how awful it is. Not how awful it is out there, but how awful it is in here. And then I start to maybe start to feel more empathy for others and recognize that, um, uh, you know, I, I have a responsibility in this too. And that maybe breaks my heart open and I start to really feel things. Empathy-wise, it's a very important idea. Um, and, you know, having empathy also for the people who who are carrying on as if nothing is happening. That's a really big one. And I, I, I struggle with that notion of how to empathise. Um, so the example I'm thinking of as a psychotherapist or a sort of retired psychotherapist is 20, 30, maybe you know, 30 to 40 years ago, um, child sexual abuse was on the horizon. And there was a huge denial about it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And in that way, it is quite like climate change. Um, and gradually, you know, people started to, there was a sort of change in the climate where it became possible to talk about this. And of course, the victims started to talk more about it and they started to be heard. And I think we're in a similar sorry, pun intended, change of the climate. You've already said 
people are no longer in outright denial. So that we're in this process of disavowal where it feels unbearable to look. And we take this sort of what I call the bystander position where it is awful, isn't it? But what can I do about it? You know, I'm helpless. Well, yes, um, we, we, it does feel helpless because it's so big and humans aren't very good at dealing with huge things because we have to come together in the ways we're talking about. And the little bit of the psychology is sharing the difficulty and feeling that you're not alone in, in the struggle seems a very good start. I also want to mention one more idea comes from the history of science. You know, how does science um, have a revolution in understanding? You know, how does Einstein's theory of everything suddenly be accepted where before it wasn't? Um, and I, I love this idea from the, the a historian of science called Thomas Kuhn, who came up with this notion of paradigm. He said, well, basically, they don't change. The old scientists die out. Um, and I think young people have got it. So many young people have really woken up. And you know, Greta is a wonderful communicator who seems wise well beyond her age. And she's able to say things. I mean, the latest blah, blah, blah is just brilliant. Um, and so many young people are aligned. They don't have the baggage. And they also are going to be the ones who are going to have to bear the consequences of our denial and disavowal and wish to carry on as we have. So, I mean, that's courage to the young people, I'd say. I think that's going to be the best show at COP26. It's going to be less around, I'm afraid, you know, Biden or whoever coming up with something. It's going to be the young people on the floor who are going to be speaking the truths. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to be what communicates. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's been really great. More part of your elbow as you and your colleagues keep working on, you know, soothing people or helping people to soothe themselves so they can actually open up and hear the, the terrible truths that are, we are going to have to really face. And, and recognise we really mean it. Yes, exactly, exactly. Thank you. And thank you.